Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to episode 155 of the Conquering Columbus podcast. Today on the show, we've got John Deuce joining us, and John is the Chief Learning Officer over at the School Performance Institute. It's a part of the United Schools Network, and we've had Andy Boy from their team on the show earlier this year. I definitely think you guys are going to enjoy this episode. We talk a lot about how their team is working to improve education, especially for poverty-stricken communities. Again, as always, hope you guys enjoy this episode, and we hope you learn a lot. Before we jump into that interview, though, we got to take a quick moment to thank some of our incredible sponsors here at Conquering Columbus, and that starts with Small Biz Cares. Small Biz Cares is a nonprofit founded by socially conscious community leaders here in Columbus, and their goal is to connect, mobilize, and inspire small businesses to create lasting positive impact in our community. And Small Biz Cares members have the unique opportunity to join like-minded businesses to raise money for great causes, participate in large-scale volunteer efforts, and improve educational opportunities for youth in our community. To get your small business involved or to learn more, visit smallbizcares.org. That is smallbizcares.org. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit helping connect entrepreneurs to everything they need, including investors, mentors, capital, and talent, through business pitch events, workshops, and classes throughout the state. And you can get more information on the web at sundownrundown.org. And now I'm going to kick it back to Josh to tell you about our last sponsor, FMX. FMX is a cloud-based facilities maintenance and management software founded and headquartered right here in Columbus, Ohio. There's a lot of competitors in this space, but FMX has made a name for itself, become the fastest-growing facilities maintenance and management software on the market on behalf of its extreme ease of use and tailored-fit approach to its clients. They serve industries ranging from education to property management, manufacturing, fast casual, and more. If you want to check out more, you can go to gofmx.com. All right, Conquerors, let's get the show on the road. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. Today on the show, we've got John Deuce joining us, and John is the Chief Learning Officer and Founding Director of the School Performance Institute. And the School Performance Institute, or SPI, launched as the learning and improvement arm of the Columbus nonprofit United Schools Network on July 1st, 2017, with startup grant funding and support from the W.G. and Patricia M. Jurgensen Fund of the Columbus Foundation and the AEP Foundation. SPI's core purpose is to seek out, study, and spread school design and improvement best practices to other high-poverty schools, and we're really excited to have John on to talk uh, on today to talk about their team and the work that they're doing and how they're applying improvement science methodology to help better our schools. 
Welcome to Conquering Columbus, John. Yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for inviting me to be here. Um, it's great to talk to you guys. Yeah, we're excited to uh, learn a little more about SPI and, and everything you guys have going on. But uh, one of the first places we like to start is typically kind of kicking it back a little bit. So maybe talk a little bit about how you got involved in the education space and how you came to SPI, some of the trips along the way. Yeah, I mean, I think my um, sort of um, entry into education was a bit accidental. I um, was not an education major in school. I uh, was doing or planning to do a clinical psychology graduate program and was doing some research in undergrad along those lines. And the research involved working with kids and their experiences, taking different psychostimulants like Ritalin. And so that sort of experience, you know, opened me up to the possibility of maybe wanting to think about working with kids in a way that wouldn't initially require you know seven years or six years of grad school before I was was doing a lot of that work so I sort of explored different options for entering the, the teaching field and, and found uh, an alternative route to teaching called Teach for America and ended up doing that in Atlanta and sort of kicked off my teaching career originally there came back to Ohio went to grad school and got a master's of education and then chose to make it sort of a long-term thing and so I've been doing that since since 2001. Where'd you do your undergrad at? Miami of Ohio. Okay, and then you came back to your grad school at? At the University of Cincinnati. Okay, awesome. So you get done with grad school, and you've kind of paved out more of the path that you want to take. How how do things progress from that point? Yeah, it's sort of an interesting path, because I'd come back, and I I started a a program in school psychology. I planned to get my doctorate. Didn't love, the, the program was great, but it just wasn't sort of the exact work that I wanted to do. I wanted to be sort of more on the front lines, teaching, principal, that type of thing. And um, as, I, as I made that decision after the first year of grad school, I realized that it was sort of a tough thing when you didn't go a traditional route in terms of licensure in Ohio. And so through some different exploration, I realized it was going to take me a, a year or two to get certified in Ohio. So I decided to, to take a leap and went to Denver, Colorado, and, and found a school out there that was uh, just starting up and they were looking for someone with sort of my experience level and my background and turned out to be a good match and sort of moved out there, much to the chagrin of my wife, who we had just gotten engaged, and I told her there are a couple places I was looking around the country. Denver was the farthest from Ohio, and it ended up being a great experience. And um, sort of as, you know, through that, I connected back in Ohio with Andy Boy, who I work with here in Columbus, through the program that the guy in Denver went through. And you mentioned before the interview that, you know, that city and that experience was one that you reflect on pretty frequently in your life and was was a really high point. What do you think it was about that experience that you were doing job-wise and, and all that that made it such a fulfilling experience? Well, I think it was, a, you know, it was my first foray into a startup. So I was on the ground with a pretty small team really shaping the vision of that school and then how that vision was implemented, which I didn't know at the time, but it really spoke to me. And I've sort of sought similar opportunities out since that experience. I also think, you know, my experience in in Atlanta as a teacher was really, it was a good experience. I learned a lot. I would say, you know, I was in Atlanta public schools and I, I, I felt like, you know, there was a lot of things I was asked to do that seemed to me that was counterproductive in terms of getting student outcomes. But I did them because I didn't really know any better. And then when I went to, to Denver and started working with Chris Gibbons, who had gone through the Building Excellence Schools program, you know, a lot of the philosophies, the, the vision that he had, the sort of educational plan that he had just intuitively made sense to me 
and so it felt a lot better <laughs> in action and and it, it actually you know when we started getting results it proved out to be a really effective model and so i think some of those sort of uncertainties that i had in atlanta but didn't have sort of the research or the knowledge to back them up really proved out in my Denver experience. Some of the things I thought we should be doing actually did work a lot, lot better. So I think it was those things that, that just lined up with my personal philosophies or the way I think, the way I process, the way I approach the education space now lined up with, with the plan that the guy in Denver had. So that made for a really great experience in, in Denver. Yeah, and you mentioned that that experience kind of led you back here to Columbus. So from building excellent schools and that experience in Denver, what what kind of brings you back in a pivot? And is this where, like, what, what year are we? Is this where we end up at SPI? Or is this before that? Yeah, so I, you know, my wife and I basically were thinking about having kids, um, and we wanted to be closer to family. So that sort of led us back to Ohio. So it was a, sort of a natural networking point to reach out and find somebody that had gone through that same Building Excellence Schools program or, you know, a similar program. And it just happened to be that Andy was one of only two people and he happened to be in the city that we that we wanted to be in in, in Columbus. So connected with him through that network and um, came back to Columbus a few months before our first school opened called Columbus Collegiate Academy. That was in 2008. And then from there, we built sort of a small network of schools. We think of ourselves as a small urban school district. And then sort of, you know, that was about uh, 11 years ago and sort of a couple of years ago, we actually launched the School Performance Initiative, School Performance Institute Initiative within United Schools Network. Now, how did the actual idea come about? Well, I mean, I think, you know, uh, pretty organic. So with a lot of charter schools that are startups, which, which they all are, it, you know, results out of the gate often aren't there. You know, there's a lot to figure out. There's bringing on new people. There's new students, new families. Lots of things you have to figure out operationally, educationally, school culture-wise. However, we had really great results out of the gate academically. I think a lot of that can be attributed to the lessons I learned in Denver and an outstanding team here in Columbus. But pretty early on, within a few years, we had schools that were coming to us and saying, can you just, you know, can you come and do a a culture audit at our school or could you maybe you know you know just walk us through what you're doing share your materials could you do a workshop for our staff and we got a, a handful of those a few years in and it was enough for us to say oh maybe we should think about packaging this stuff up that we do more formally and we talk about it um, we also started to grow about that same time from from one campus to now four so you know a lot of the growth plans took took precedent and so I was I was originally the principal of that middle school which is obviously a, our first middle school which is a time intensive job and then I was the manager of our principals uh, managing the, the principals that existed and then also helping the principals that were doing startup. So that took a lot of time. And so it wasn't until we brought on somebody else to manage the principals um, about two and a half, three years ago that I then sh was able to shift my focus to launching SPI more, more formally. And that's what we did in, in the summer of 2017. Yeah. And so when talking about SPA, right, you guys are using science improvement methodology to apply and, and take challenges that your schools or other schools, other charter schools are facing and build outcomes and find solutions to those, right? Is that the, the gist? Do I have that right? Or what, what exactly is your day-to-day -day like? Yeah, so, so from the start, we've said that our mission is to seek out, study, and then spread 
learning and improvement practices that work, especially in high poverty schools. That started with, we've written a lot of internal sort of training manuals in key areas, and then also opening up our own doors to invite people in and spend the day in our schools through a structured workshop and sort of share our practices. And that's, that's how we went to market with a workshop called Study the Network, where we bring people in and we sort of talk about what are the four or five things you have to have in place in a school, and if you don't, there's almost no chance that improvement is going to happen. And so we've been doing those workshops for about two years. I've also been learning for the past three years or so this methodology called improvement science, which started in the healthcare world at, at um, an organization called the Institute for Healthcare Improvement in Boston. And then there's an organization out in California called the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching that's made it their mission to bring that methodology from healthcare to education. And so I've been learning from them and IHI about the methodology. Along the way, I've been running projects internally to figure out uh, how to use the tools, how to you know, take the stuff on paper and translate it into actual execution. That's how I've been spending a lot of my time uh, so far is running the Study the Network workshops with external participants and then figuring out ways to take improvement science and school-based improvement teams and making them really the local improvement engines of schools because they are the ones that best understand the context that they're working under. They best understand their students. And so I'm sort of there as an advisor bringing the methodology to them and then they take it and use it to solve the problems that are you know, facing them in their schools. And so all along our mission, in addition to, to finding these practices, has been to improve ourselves internally. So we think that by opening our doors, by sharing, by being transparent, we're gonna make ourselves better as an organization. Um, it's really hard to start new schools in Ohio because of funding mechanisms, access to facilities, access to talent, those types of things are challenging. So we also see this as a way to um, increase the effectiveness of schools outside of our network. And then we also want to generate revenue for, for our schools. We're, we're a pretty resource-strapped organization. So um, if we can become less reliant on philanthropy and more reliant on things we have more control over, that's a, we see that as a, as a sort of a third reason for, for launching SPI. What were some of the challenges early on? Well, um, they're ongoing. I think uh, you know we're about we're just under two years into the the startup phase. I think um, you know one big thing is we have to translate the materials or the workshops into things that will work in other settings outside of our network. I think figuring out those the the context. You know, of which each school is operating in. So even even different buildings in the same district can have you know different conditions that they're trying to improve under. Right, different students, different student populations, different types of teachers, different experience levels, different even different access to resources within a district. Um, you know, we're also a very small team, so you know everybody on our team is is wearing a lot of hats, doing a lot of jobs, and so big projects can easily shift your, your focus from something that you were doing. So you have to be really careful there to be deliberate about how you're using your time for that reason. And we're very lean, so you know, we're doing all this with you know, uh, limited resources. So I think those are all, all pretty significant challenges, but not, I don't think they're unique to our, to our startup. All right, Conquerors, we're gonna take a quick break here in the show to tell you about a group called Columbus Gives Back. 
If you're looking for a way to get involved in your community, but you don't know where and how to start, look no further than Columbus Gives Back. By partnering with over 150 Central Ohio nonprofits, Columbus Gives Back makes volunteering fun and easy by offering 30 to 40 volunteer events each month that are free of cost, commitment, and hassle. Sign up for your first event today at columbusgivesback.org. That's columbusgivesback.org. All right, let's get back into the episode. I think it's important to be mindful of that, like your responsibilities, especially when in a startup environment, I found myself, right, I wear a couple hats here at the team, and if I spend too much time focusing on one area, I definitely can see, like, the lack of attention. You know, you have to constantly be thinking about all the different roles you're doing and and find a way to make sure you're measuring out your time and and efforts appropriately. So that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, I guess, talk to me a little more about the improvement science methodology and, and what that really means. You know, is there a particular process you follow for that, or is there anything you, you can share about that process? Yeah, I mean, I think um, the, the methodology itself is, is fairly simple, and that's sort of part of what draws me to the methodology. I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's built on top of a, uh, a model for improvement, like I said, that was developed by, it was actually predates the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, but they, they're the ones that have really sort of made that work come alive in the healthcare sector. It's really just two parts. There's a thinking part and a doing part. And it, the model itself really disciplines improvement work. And so, you know, even when you think about things you try to improve in your personal lives, you know, you, you set out to do a certain time in a race or lose a certain amount of weight or, you know, fitness goals are typical and they're also typically not achieved, right? You, you sort of set a goal, maybe you don't, maybe you write it down, maybe you don't, maybe you have a plan, maybe you don't, maybe you track your data, maybe you don't. What improvement science does is make sure all of those things happen. Mm-hmm. So it sort of starts with three questions that are sort of core to the science. So, you know, what is it specifically that we're trying to improve? And we actually write that down in a, in an aim statement. Uh, it's time bound, it's measurable, it's observable, all those, those things are best practice, but often don't happen, right? There's a lot of talk about improvement, but we don't actually have a plan for how we're going to improve. Second question is, how will we know if some change that we introduce is improvement? So we have to have a methodology for for measuring those changes. And then the third question is, what are the actual changes that we can make that will lead to improvement, right? I think a lot of times in education, we hold up examples of changes in data that actually aren't reflective of improvement, and they're more reflective of some fundamental change in the conditions or the students that we're, that, that we're measuring. Um, and then, you know, from there, once you sort of have your aim, you have your measurement system, you have some ideas for change that you think are going to work based on your experience, based on your sort of scan of the literature in that, that specific area, you actually very quickly start sort of rapid cycles of test. So you plan the test, you do the test, you study it, and then you act on it. Key to that is that you make a prediction at the, at this, before the test happens, and then you very carefully observe the data. And the difference between the prediction and the outcome is the learning that drives the next round of improvements. And there's sort of a mantra here that, you know, sort of the antithesis to the typical research projects that can, especially in education, that can go on and on and on and on. And five years later, we find out that something works somewhere, but we're not even sure who it all works with or under what conditions it works. The difference with improvement science is 
we ask, what can you do next Tuesday? Meaning like, what can you do literally next week to start testing this thing to figure out if, if your ideas are on track so you don't spend all this time planning to implement and then you find out that your, your whole plan, once you actually do it, you have to throw out the window. So it's those two things, the thinking part, you know, those three core improvement questions and then the doing part where you actually put the test in action, that's really all improvement sciences and there's a lot of tools and a lot of terminology and a lot of sort of techniques that go into it and that's what I'm trying to learn but that's the basic gist of the science. You mentioned that you know manipulating data um, for lack of a better term or just interpreting data in, in certain ways can cause people to make an inference that maybe isn't justified based on actual changes. Mm -hmm. It seems like that could be one flaw of the approach you know it seems like another um, point where things could go wrong is like the structuring of the actual experiments and then knowing how to act on them afterwards. So how has your team been so successful at knowing how to structure those and then knowing what actions need to be take, taken once uh, you've gathered that data? Yeah, I mean, I think to, to the first part of your question, which is, you know, I think the, the types of goals that you set up for people impact their behavior. So one thing that I've talked about with one of the teams I'm working with internally is that goals for accountability and goals for improvement are two very different things, but they're often conflated. And I think probably lots of sectors, but in education for sure. And what I mean by that is, you know, goals for accountability are things like stake test scores, right? So that, they're the thing that gets all the play. But once you get those scores, whether they went up or down, whether they're good or bad, it, it doesn't tell you, you don't know anything about why those changes occurred. You know, and goals for accountability, they happen, you know, at the end of the year. They, like I said, don't, don't, don't point toward what, what, what change that might have been an improvement. And they're also, they, you know, they, I, I think accountability goals are important, but when you mix them up with, or hold them up as if people are supposed to look at those and then improve some part of their work because they know the, those test scores, it's just not gonna happen, and in fact, they, that, that doesn't lead to any type of meaningful change. Goals for improvement are very different. You know, goals for improvement are, you know, something that you can see the results on really quickly. And so they also are things that are, you know, the goals for improvement can be things that sort of the team can rally around because, you know, they're part of seeing these short-term and medium-term and long-term changes. When you get the data back from the the plan do study act plan do study act cycles you know you're getting that data back quickly so that that you know if whatever you're working on is is at least on the right path so i think it's important to 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 really call that out those differences between goals for accountability and goals for improvement within our within our work you know i think it's also important that in terms of the structure the team is set up so that the people on the team would know best about whatever the thing is that we're working to improve. Um, they are also the very people that would have to implement the intervention. So having them have a hand in the creation of those interventions sort of makes it more likely that, that they will stick long-term. And I think that, you know, because, because it, those people are often teachers and they definitely have to be a part of the team. And typical sort of school reform or improvement work 
a lot of times they don't have a voice around the table in terms of what's being proposed. I think it, for all those reasons, improvement science is a very different approach than the typical approach to accountability, school improvement, school or education reform, all, you know, all those different things. So. And it seems like something that, nothing against public schools, but wouldn't work in a, in a typical public school environment, right? This is probably something specific to, or not something you could implement as easily within a typical public school environment? Um, two things I'd say. One, I always call out that there are, there's traditional public schools mm -hmm. and then there's public charter schools, but they're both public, they're right. both public schools. Um, no, I, I actually don't think there's anything, anything about the governance structure of a traditional public school or a public charter or a private school for that matter that would preclude it from, from, from using the methodology. I mean, this improvement science started with the Japanese in the industry. That's where it started. And then it was healthcare and now education. So I think it's, I actually think it's sector agnostic in addition to school type agnostic. Now I do think there is, there are mindset issues around improvement and, you know, a growth mindset. I think one of the things that I saw that sort of put me on, not, not on edge, but I was calling into question when I went to the first um, sort of improvement summit conference at Carnegie, all over the materials, there was a saying at the bottom of every page that said, probably wrong, definitely incomplete. So you have to be accepting of that type of mindset. If you are, if you can't sort of release this idea that you're, you're the expert and you know it all, then, then this is not the approach for you. But if you sort of humble yourself a little bit and realize that, you know, especially early on that, that the ideas that you come with probably are wrong and, and, and they are definitely incomplete. If you have that type of mindset, I think this science can actually benefit any, any type of organization, any sector, public, private, whatever. Definitely. And so let's talk about a specific example then. Uh, so this year, you know, one of the biggest challenges you guys have been tackling is uh, that your eighth graders are achieving high test scores but they're not necessarily ready for high school and they're showing that later. So can you talk a little bit about maybe that process for analyzing the issue and, and some of the findings you guys have had so far? Yeah, I mean, I think the, so the, the project came about because uh, about 15 months ago, I went after a Gates Foundation grant that was funding this type of work. Mm -hmm. um, it's a new line of grant making at Gates. I didn't get it, but I learned a lot, you know, just the exposure to the various webinars the, what the people had to say about the type of work Gates was focused on now, um, different research and policy reports that it exposed me to. And I had discovered these on-track indicator systems that was fairly simple data for schools, things like you know some combination of GPA and grades and core classes and attendance rate and number of suspensions. When you looked at data in different sort of gradations of how kids were doing on those things, if you set up those gradations right, they were far more predictive of the next important thing in a student's career. So in our case with our eighth graders, that would be high school readiness and something that would predict high school graduation. Things like course grades and GPA predict that much better than, than test scores. And so, you know, about a third of kids where this study was done in Chicago that had high test scores actually didn't, weren't in, weren't going on to graduate from, from high school because the test scores are one-time events, whereas grades and GPAs are sort of um, not only content knowledge, it's also sort of stick-to-itiveness and habits of work and mindset and all those types of things. And so test scores are important. You know, they, they, they tell you what kids know on the day they took the test, but 
you know, we found that despite a history of high test scores in, in that particular school, there were sort of more kids that were off track for high school readiness than I would have sort of initially predicted. And so that's looking at that data, learning about the Gates research sort of pointed us toward this being an important project to undertake within our, within our school or within our network at one of our schools. Right, right, and then as the project continues to move forward, like, is that something that we're still working on actively this year? Is yep. it something so? I think it'll be in a multi-year okay. project, yep. Okay. You talked a little bit about, you know, the development of the organization over time. What does the, the structure look like today, and what are some of your goals for the future? So in terms of the network, so we, we started, started with a single middle school, serving sixth grade in 2008, and then we grow schools, typically a grade level at a time. So that school is, you know, it's been a full six to eight for a number of years now. We started a second middle school in 2012. That's a full six to eight. Um, along the way, we just, we, uh, because we didn't have a high school, we started a, a high school placement program in our schools. So we help our kids navigate where they're gonna go next, whether it's a public charter, a traditional public school, a private school, whatever. We try to get, you know, three kids into DeSales and four kids into Crystal Ray and five kids into Columbus Alternative High School and so forth and so on. And then once we started USN in 2013, we added an alumni services program. So that, that program then tracks the kids through high school and college. And then when, when we had an opportunity to grow, we decided to grow down to elementary school. So in 2014, we launched our first elementary school, which is now for the first time serving the full K to five grade span. And then we launched a second elementary school that's now serving K-1 and that will grow into a K-5. And so it's four schools, one sort of district office hub, that's the United Schools Network, so five nonprofits with SPI as an initiative focused on learning and improvement, and then the alumni services focused on our kids after they leave us in eighth grade. So about 100 adults, about 800, between eight and eight, 850 kids this year, it'll eventually be about 120, 130 adults serving 12 to 1300 kids once that last elementary school is fully grown out. And the goals for the future, anything that's uh, in particular like milestones that you're really chasing after? You know, there's a few, a few things that we're really, really focused on. Um, obviously, growing out our last school is really important. I think you can never take your eye off of talent and leadership development, so that's something we're always looking at. What happens with SPI is a big part of sort of our strategic plan over the, the next uh, five years. I think the alumni services program is a big part of our strategic focus over the next five years. And then I think also we've put a significant number of resources and paid a lot of attention to the, the idea of non-academic barriers. So, you know, we've, we've added family resource centers in all of our schools, um, or we're in the process of adding them. They're, they're in three of our schools, we're adding it at the fourth campus now. Putting things in there like washers and dryers and, uh, you know, a small food bank, um, clothes. You know, we're not a replacement for the Mid-Ohio Food Bank or anything like that, but at least we can be a stopgap. And then where we don't have resources for things our families need, we're, we have a lot of partnerships that we're working on that provide those services being, you know, mental health services, counseling services, dental vans, those things. So we're thinking about, you know, what are all the things that our kids need to get where they want to go? So we're, we're trying to facilitate on a number of fronts. Yeah, it sounds like you guys have a lot of, a lot of different targets you're focusing on and, and uh, 
hopefully those turn out really well. But I think it's a good place to kind of pivot towards one of our last questions of the show, John. It's sure. centered around the uh, theme here on Conquering Columbus, which is live uncomfortably. And without telling you too much about why we chose live uncomfortably, what do you think of when you hear the phrase and how does it apply to both the SPI, USN, and, and your life and career? My initial reaction to that question is that, you know, I, I definitely feel like I have, you know, throughout my career chosen um, challenging assignments. I think, I think I've chosen, you know, to work in places that have, you know, a lot of systemic barriers that are piled on top of them. But when I, when I really started thinking about this, I really had to step back and say, you know, do, do I really ever have to live uncomfortably? And what I mean by that is that, you know, I, from start to finish, I've had a pretty privileged life, be it my family, my education, access to, to college and graduate school and solid career after that. You know, what I really think of is I don't know that I know what it is or means to live uncomfortably when I think of a lot of the challenges that I've seen in the places that I've worked the challenges of you know, living in poverty, the uncertainty that comes with that, sort of figuring out day to day and week to week. To me, you know, I really have to step back and think about, even when I think things are challenging, even when I think I have obstacles, and when I, I you know, I've had setbacks for sure, both personally and professionally, but, but I think it pales in comparison to, to a lot of, of folks. And so while I do think there have been uncomfortable moments and times, I, I, I think it is important to step back and sort of put that in perspective. Um, and I think that's part of the reason that, that I, you know, I do this work because it, it does expose me to perspectives and, and, and um, viewpoints that, that I wouldn't have been exposed to otherwise. Well, John, it's a, it's a good answer and it's a direction we haven't had anybody take it before, so I appreciate that and uh, appreciate you taking time to tell your story. Yeah, absolutely. Conquering Columbus. Yeah, thank you for having me. And Conquerors, thanks for tuning in. That was John Deuce. He is the Chief Learning Officer and the Founding Director of the School Performance Institute, part of the United Schools Network. If you guys enjoyed that episode want to learn more about their team, check out the links down in the show notes. Share the episode with your friends. Give us a like on Facebook. We really appreciate you tuning in every week, and we will uh, talk to you next week. Hey, Conquerors, that's it for the episode today. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode and learned a lot. If you did, make sure to leave a like. Share us on Facebook with your friends. We really appreciate all your support. And every time you share our podcast or leave a review on iTunes, it really does help us out. Before we let you go, we want to take one last moment to thank all of our incredible sponsors here at Conquering Columbus. And that starts with Small Biz Cares. Small Biz Cares is a nonprofit founded by socially conscious community leaders here in Columbus. And their goal is to connect, mobilize, and inspire small businesses to create lasting positive impact in our community. And Small Biz Cares members have the unique opportunity to join like-minded businesses to raise money for great causes, participate in large-scale volunteer efforts, and improve educational opportunities for youth in our community. To get your small business involved or to learn more, visit smallbizcares.org. That is smallbizcares.org. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit helping connect entrepreneurs to everything they need, including investors, mentors, capital, and talent through business pitch events, workshops, and classes throughout the state. And you can get more information on the web at sundownrundown.com.
www.fmxradio.org. And now I'm going to kick it back to Josh to tell you about our last sponsor, FMX. FMX is a cloud-based facilities maintenance and management software founded and headquartered right here in Columbus, Ohio. There's a lot of competitors in this space, but FMX has made a name for itself, become the fastest-growing facilities maintenance and management software on the market on behalf of its extreme ease of use and tailored-fit approach to its clients. They serve industries ranging from education to property management, manufacturing, fast casual, and more. If you want to check out more, you can go to gofmx.com. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get, you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.